our next guest works at Fox Media. Um, he has experience with the NBA Players Association. Uh, we have the pleasure in welcoming Olisa. Um, and uh, forgive me if I mispronounce <laughs> your last name. Uh, is it Azikiwe? Yeah, yeah, you got okay, it. Okay, gotcha. That was, that's yeah. like the part I was worried about uh, with this interview. Um, joining Hoopsology, how's it going, Olisa? All good, yeah. Um, again, having a good Sunday. I'm glad to be here, talk some hoops, talk um, the NBA, sports in general. And um, yeah, happy to be on. So, as we were talking off air, Olisa, um, our show did a lot of just coverage on the NBA bubble and kind of the perspective of the players and what they were going through when, you know, the first pandemic first hit. And we kind of want to get your perspective, just what, what the player association does kind of like is their interworkings and how it relates to the rest of the NBA. Um, so before we get to that, I just want to get to some kind of uh, late breaking news that broke. This is the last couple of days uh, with CJ McCollum becoming the president of the Players Association. What's yeah. your opinion on that? And kind of what is his role? Like, I mean, it, it must be tough as him being a regular NBA player, but taking on this additional role of being the president of the Players Association. What does that entail for him specifically? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, um, as you mentioned before, I, I have experience being at the National Basketball Players Association. I was there for a little over a year or so um, recently. Um, so as it pertains to CJ McCollum, um, I know like in, in general, the position as like president is uh, more of a, just a, in, just a more of an achievement in terms of leadership, in terms of like, it's a sign that the people who like voted for you actually believe in you as a, someone who can um, provide um, decision making, um, can listen to people and just an overall a good person to like, you know, lead the charge uh, when it comes to the union and players and um, representing the players' um, opinions and um, their overall objectives going forward in this NBA. Um, so for CJ, uh, I mean, I personally don't have any relationship or uh, had the pleasure of meeting him, but uh, just from afar, I know that he's someone who's a uh, very curious about sports, sports media in general, and the business of sports. So I, I'm like, from the outside looking in, I know he's going to bring that perspective and that um, expertise. Um, I was um, there under Chris Paul, Chris Paul, and um, although I didn't get the pleasure of meeting him as well, because mostly um, he was playing in the season. So that's the thing. Um, you know, half the year they're like they're doing their full time job or their other full time job as being an NBA star. So um, a lot of the communication is definitely more high level, um, but definitely the it's more of like setting the culture in terms of, you know, being collaborative, making sure like you're not only the person in charge, but like almost like a servant leader in terms of make sure you consider the opinions of the entire 450 members, because uh, that's the, the um, number of people that play in the NBA. So, uh, excuse me. But um, yeah, in general, uh, I think this just shows the amount of faith that the other players in the league have um, in CJ, and um, I'm sure he's going to do a great job. Do you think there'll be any kind of an adjustment period from Chris Paul to CJ? I mean, Chris Paul was such a leader for a long time and had, you know, he played a role in some integral decisions over the years. Um, is there any kind of like a transitional phase to CJ McCollum, or do you think it would just be kind of normal him just becoming the president? Is there anything that you think CJ will do differently? I know you obviously haven't met him, but just in terms of, you know, it's a new era. I mean, CJ's more of like these current players compared to Chris Paul of kind of the banana bow crew, of lack for a better term. So is yeah. there going to be any kind of like transitional period or anything new do you think CJ will bring to this role, you think? 
Well, I think um, this kind of represents like a, the changing of the guard. Uh, you mentioned like Chris Paul, like someone was drafted in 2005, um, kind of comes from that, that more old school um, time of, type of like LeBron, Melo, Wayne Wade, uh, just older generation. So CJ coming into this position is more representation of like those younger players who are coming through the ranks, um, kind of achieving the leadership roles um, now or being in power. Um, of being a leader now. So um, transition-wise, I'm sure the executive team there, um, um, uh, uh, right now is uh, still Michelle Roberts. I know she's supposed to be in transition or so or such, but I'm, I'm sure she and the rest of the um, higher level ex executives there are going to do a great job of like bringing CJ on board. I know like you don't just become president, you usually have to put in the time and effort in terms of like helping out with the PA, um, uh, before you are able to have that pleasure of being president. So CJ is probably not just coming into this um, just without a clue. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it shouldn't be too much of a um, uh, of a hard transition. I mean, obviously there's going to be some like growing pains, but for the most part, it should be fine. Oh, Lisa, can you give us just kind of a, a general overview of the NBA PA and specifically uh, the the number of players that are involved in that as far as like leadership roles? Because I know not only are is will CJ McCollum be president, but we also have like several vice presidents. Can you just give us like if, if I had never heard of the NBA PA before, just kind of the structure and function from the player side anyway? All right. So, yeah, from the. Oh, yeah, that's. I mean, just for clarification, I was on the executive side, so I was working with your lead negotiators, and um, more specifically, I was in basketball, um, the BRI side, so basketball-related income, in terms of doing all that. But I guess in terms of um, overall organizational structure, um, from for the players, you have your, your president, then you have your your vice presidents, which almost in a sense acts as like its own board or. Um, uh, if you compare it to like the president of the United States, you have um like your secretaries and all those people. Mm, like so a cabinet, kinda, yeah. Your cabinet, that's the word I was looking for. So they, they kind of act as that role. Um, and then you um you have your active par participants amongst um the four four hundred and fifty players. So those who might be seeking to achieve um a greater position down the line or just want to help out because you know, being a union, everyone's being represented, so everyone's kind of like has um something to gain from for the betterment of the union. Um, so yeah, I, and then, yeah, that's basically, I mean, from at least my knowledge, that's the basic structure right there. Um, yeah. Gotcha. And is, is that something that's grown over time or has that been in, intact for a long time, the way we see it today? Uh, I mean, like, yeah, like most things, everything's involved. So um, definitely the, um, the vice president's roles or the, the amount of seats has definitely grown um, over the years as like more and more people take interest in um, seeing the betterment of like players and their ability to um, reap the rewards of their hard work in terms of like likeness. And so, so that's, sorry, that's one of the main objectives of the MBPA is uh, one of the things, since um, their more recent uh, CBA negotiation, they um, got back the player likeness rights so now they're in charge of negotiating on behalf of the entire um, players of for player likeness. So um, that's why I mean, for your um, NBA 2K fans, you might see the MVPA logo in there mm. because uh, 
the players and their faces aren't in the game if it's not for the MVPA. So things of that nature. And um, so um, that's like that's essentially the role of the MVPA, as well as taking care of things as like benefits, um, and then um, a lot of um, not so exciting things, but like things that contribute to um, the overall well-being of a player. Um, so like, their whole objective is like again, I keep saying the number four fifty is because like their whole the brand is to think about everyone, not just the star players as well, the thirteenth or fourteenth or fifteenth man on the roster as well. Internally, what's what's your sense of the pressure that say again this example of CJ McCollum taking on the the president role from the player side? What's the your sense of the pressure that that adds to him? I, I think you know, speaking just anecdotally for myself, it, it seemed like it earned Chris Paul a lot of respect. I, I think he's a, a guy who's respected, I mean, of course, for his game around the league as well. But um, are are there any negatives to taking on a, a role like this for like a CJ McCollum? I mean, you're definitely like your, you know, your name is more out there when it comes to like league businesses or business transactions and things like that, um, especially when dealing with um, the things that the MVPA deals with. Um, in terms of pressure, I mean, Chris Paul was president for a long while. I don't like. I don't think you can say or point to anything that um, being president like detracted from his career or any of his performance or so. Um, I think for the most part, it's just as like even off the court, it just helps with like the overall maturation of these um, men or these players as men, and so. Um, CJ having the opportunity to um, be someone that younger players will go to when they have questions um, or being in charge of like onboarding with the rookies in terms of helping them become more acclimated to the league. Um, I think it's just going to better him as a person um, more so than anything. And um, just, yeah, I don't, I don't see it being as a detraction from, especially from a performance standpoint. I'm shifting gears. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on just his overall uh, NBA season. It was such, seems like it's such a roller coaster. Um, some controversy, just some inconsistency with just players starting. Just a pandemic, just this playoffs. What were just your your thoughts observing everything? Your impressions of just you know the eventual champion, the Bucks. Um, yeah. Did you enjoy this season? Just like I'm, I'm sure you're you're a fan of hoops. So what was just your overall just enjoyment level? Because it's kind of ranged all over the map. I can't get can't really get a beat on like if people really enjoyed this season i know i did i'd enjoyed the playoffs this is a, a really a breath of fresh air in terms of the newer talent that was seen in, in the playoff scene but what was your overall thoughts oh yeah so um overall i mean as a fan i definitely enjoyed the season um like, again there were a lot of plot lines and like storylines may um that like made it definitely more interesting or so. Um, COVID, of course, um, made everything a little bit more different. Um, I think it's from the the, stamp, the situation where people were like, not sure when it was gonna start or like whether it should start, things like that. Uh, it's just, you have to take into account like the league in itself is a business. And so, um, I mean, from a product standpoint, I think you can say that you know, the, the foul manipulations and the choppy flow of the game definitely kind of hurt the product. And as you see, the news broke today that, like, they're going to start implementing those uh, new officiating changes to even um, the summer league games now. 
but um, that's just give you a sense of like how some of the fan feedback that was coming, um, that was being heard from um, the people in the league offices and like they're starting to take notice and implement real things. Um, the playing games of this past season was a success in my opinion, in terms of like generating and sustaining excitement and intrigue in games and team standings late into the season. I know that was a, that was a strong concern, especially people in and around the league or whether like do like your casual fans actually care like about who catches, who gets that seven or eight seeds or things like that. But um, this whole idea of a, like kind of on kind of like mirroring NCAA in a sense of the, like the desperate, the being more desperate or just having a, more of a chance of getting in. So I guess you would say it's more like college football than basketball. But in general, um, just the the sense that like more and more teams and more and more fan bases will be more intrigued because their teams have more of a chance of getting into the playoffs is something that I think the playing games did a great job at doing. Um, obviously, with the playoffs, injuries uh, definitely kind of um, harmed the product in a way. Um, you know, players were injury riddled, um, but I still think it was very entertaining. Um, there's a lot of a lot of players, uh, young players like Trey Young, that like rose up and like create a bigger name for himself. And as you see this offseason, um, create a bigger bag for himself in terms of um, signing. Um, you have your like your franchises like the Clippers, and even like your players like um, Chris Paul, who overcame some demons and advancing further into the um, playoffs. So uh, I mean, from product standpoint. There were some ups and downs, but overall, it was uh, it was pretty um, interesting from um, just from in my opinion, and uh, from a business standpoint. However, um, I think a lot of fans or just people in general, uh, going back to whole NBA as a business, um, don't fully comprehend how um, devastating COVID has been for um, not just the NBA but sports leagues in general. Um, it's definitely like heightened their sense of like we need to um, essentially grab every dollar necessary as you can see um i mean as you saw this season um the nba actually set a record for the amount of sponsorship they were able to accrue um and that's just kind of like them feeling more desperate in terms of like trying to recoup all the losses that um happened when COVID hit and like derailed the 1920 season i mean i mean just to add more numbers to that like according to uh, according to a lot of reports especially i mean including like espn uh, COVID dropped league revenue from um, 1819 to 1920 by 10%. So in 1819, it was $8.76 billion. And then um, from 1920 with COVID and everything, it dropped to $7.92 billion. So yeah, pretty significant there. Um, and so with the, and then like a lot of people forget like the se 1920 season started off with like the Daryl Morey and China situation. Which has some financial repercussions there as well. Mm -hmm. So, like overall, like the nineteen twenty season was like a season from hell for the NBA. Yes. Um, like losing almost a billion and a half dollars with, um, with everything said and done. And so, like if you look at the numbers for them to actually get back to like pre-COVID success and pre-COVID numbers, they would have to like nineteen twenty, like being seventy-two games in all, half the games having being without fans would have had to like brought in like $9.83 billion, which was, which is astronomical in thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It's like way more than all time numbers there. So like in general, like you just, you have to kind of take into context how, how sports leagues in general are trying to like recuperate 
And like, I'm saying there's all this because it's like, it's going to affect salary caps down the line. So, mm. um, and the way GMs essentially kind of manage their um, their rosters. I mean, if you look at, so like right now, the the media rights deal is like 24 billion over nine years. And that's set to expire after the 24, 25 season. And if you look at reports now, um, they're reporting that um, media rights deals are, oh, like right now the NBA is like kind of asking their partners for like putting it out there that they're going to ask for around 70 billion to 75 billion over the course of nine years, which is essentially three times the current deal right now. Yeah. So uh, it's like, it's more of so like these, like they're hurting, but like at the end of the day, when it comes to media, like a lot of sports, live sports is like essentially why a lot of these networks are still able to keep the lights on. So um, they they understand that as well. So like going back to the whole being more desperate, um, that's kind of like forming or like remodeling itself into like them like putting the pressure on their media partners to ask for more money. And again, saying all this because like media rights deals goes into the salary cap, but meaning that like in the near future, um, at least by the twenty twenty. The 2025 offseason is going to be, uh, I guess, the 2016 offseason times three um, when you look at media rights deals. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, everybody remembers how crazy 2016 free agency was. Yeah. And then also, I'm um, mm-hmm. like, uh, sorry to be um, rambling, no. uh, yeah, but also um, some like GMs might, might take it upon themselves to be a little more creative and like signing bigger contracts. Um, in the near future, because knowing that like those big contracts are going to be much cheaper down the line once the um, that alleged or um, projected big media rights deal kicks in. So, you gave um, a lot of great information. Um, yeah, so thank you. I have a ton of questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's let's tackle the pandemic first. So before you know, twenty twenty the thought of not having fans in the stands for sporting events is, was unthinkable. Now we're in it's a totally different paradigm shift where things are changing month to month. So with these leagues, are they prepared, like in your opinion, for like what happens if there's another virus out there? What happens if, you know, there's another strain of this COVID-19 that we're dealing with now in which the NBA had, the NBA went through two different phases. They went through a phase of the bubble and they went through a phase of having fans with, you know, wearing masks or having fans with no restrictions. And you talked about these increasing media rights deals is one of the reasons why they're asking for more money. Obviously they want to make more money, but right. the other, the other reason is to perhaps recoup some of that loss that they would lose from gate revenue from season tickets. It, would that kind of make them feel a little bit better in terms of, hey, if there's no fans and we're in this situation again, like we were in 2020, hey, we can get through. We know what to do in this situation. Is, is that some kind of like a, a fail safe in your mind, so to speak? Yeah, exactly. And um, if you even look at the, the structure of a lot of these deals, uh, there's a lot of guaranteed money to the leagues in general. Even if you look at the NFL, who just recently signed their big deal, I think it was $100 billion. Um, a lot of, like, especially from a union side, a lot of the, the, the arguments or like the dissatisfaction is that like a lot of the guaranteed money from those media rights deals goes to the leagues and their owners and um, not necessarily the, the players in general. So, um, so yeah, it is kind of a fail safe in terms of like, Hey, if, for some like terrible reason, we aren't able to put on games with full capacity um, or like 
have another bubble situation, like at least from an owner standpoint, they still get paid or they still recoup um, a lot of money. And um, just based off of the, these, um, the structure of the media rights deals. So um, yeah, the media rights deals are very important when it comes to the businesses of these of sports leagues. And it kind of, kind of lowers or not, it kind of raises the floor on their um, projected revenue and projected profits and income and like lessens the risk of owning and running a sports league or a sports team. Alisa, I wanted your thoughts on how the TV ratings tie into all of this because it it seems almost counterintuitive when you see that ratings are down a bit. And I think everyone understands, you know, scheduling has been different. It's It's mm-hmm. been different times, you know, the right. past 1.5 seasons or however you want to put that. Uh, but, you know, if you see a trend continue where ratings are down, let's say below what they were in the 2019 finals when Toronto won, uh, is that something that the league could potentially get pushback from the companies that they are trying to sell the rights to uh, in terms of this, this number that you mentioned, you know, three times as much for these media rights, or do you think there's enough competition that, uh, that maybe they're just going to get what they ask for, no matter what someone else will pay that. No, yeah, that's a great question. I think the key here is um, like the key in most situations is context. So um, especially when it comes to, like these live rights and like overall media, um, I mean, across the board, like ratings are going down. Like top TV shows aren't don't generate the same amount of ratings as they did 20 or 30 years ago. And the same goes sure. for sports and like everything. Um, a large part of it has to do with like the streaming services, like Netflix or your new ones like Disney Plus and Pe- and Peacock and Paramount and all the other ones. And so, like, if you think of it like this, so the pie of the ratings is getting smaller. But a lot, these sports leagues still have the same share of the pie. It's mm. like so the pie may be getting smaller, but like their share of the pie is still relatively the same or big or what have you. So um, they still retain that leverage in, um, when going into these um, negotiations with their media partners to get essentially what they're asking for. Because like as I said before, like. Uh, these media, um, especially these networks um, who aren't in the streaming game or aren't backed by like the most profitable or high valuable companies in the world, like your Amazons and Apple, uh, they need um, sports leagues to put on these games because like sports as a property is um, so special because like if you don't watch it live, you kind of lose the luster and the value of it and you can't like participate in the conversations around it because like you're behind so you have to you have to be active in participating it with it in the moment and that in the moment that live aspect of it is so valuable and so and like so that pulls in a lot of eyes there and so again like the pie may be getting smaller but like these leagues still retain their um sizable amount of that pie gotcha um, I had a uh, follow-up question to that, and I think Matt and I have been talking about the, the ratings, and you brought up the, the media rights still being up. I think you said, what, in 2024 or 25? Yeah, so the last year of this current NBA media rights deal is the 2020, 20, 2024 to 2025 season. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. Is, as best as you can predict, I know this might be a super difficult question, but I, mm-hmm. yeah, you're very insightful with your analysis of this. Is there any kind of a possibility that you know we could see a shift in terms of the networks that 
want the NBA. So right now we've been used to you know ESPN and um, Turner having the rights to the NBA. Is there any way that you know NBC, Fox, CBS? They jump into this fray of really wanting um, the NBA because obviously all these um, companies put out offers, but mm-hmm. there's only certain ones that are like really super serious. So, is there? Right. Do you think there's any kind of a possibility that we could see a shift in terms of other networks covering or picking up the NBA when those rights deals are up? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I would say that so in understanding the relationship when it comes to like sports leagues and their media partners, it's um although I mentioning like sports league have a lot of leverage but it's still mutual beneficial for the sports leagues to like kind of like come to like be helpful to their media partners in a sense that like especially if you like like the nfl like they've been on network television forever and they they kind of are resistant to like just being exclusively on cable or on a streaming platform like your amazon prime and like NBA is essentially the same way because, um, you know, everyone's chasing the NFL, especially in the United States. Um, but so essentially that from sports leagues, they want to be in front of the most eyes as possible. Um, not only that, not only helps with money, but it helps with creating better awareness for the league and its brand. Um, the more people you're in front of, the more fans you're able to get. That allows you to go, you know, wherever, have teams in different markets as well, because your your game and your products are in front of a large scale of people so um they want to be with people who have the like the largest net essentially and like that today is still your network television um operators um like your your um nbc's your foxes your cbs and your abc um so like yes amazon and apple they have the money or even netflix as well they have the money to like put forth a lucrative deal on, on the table for these sports leagues or your NBAs and your NFLs. But um, it's still like, you you still have to put into the equation when it comes to doing good business of like, how many people are actually gonna see my product? Like, it's not only good, like get paid, but like long-term, like how does this affect my product and the brand as a whole? So um, I think Apple and your Amazons and your Google or whatever um, major tech company that comes into play, they're gonna they're gonna have a seat at the table because just from a money standpoint, they're gonna have the money to compete. But um these leagues are still gonna to, to consider um like how many people can be can be reached um by being on certain networks. And like I I mean a lot of people say Amazon might just I don't know, people are saying that like some one of these tech giants might just take um like exclusive rights for these sports leagues, but I don't think that's the case because it it just doesn't mean um, equate to doing good business from a branding and overall awareness standpoint. To your point, too, I, I would think the league would be worried about infrastructure in you know someone new coming to the table like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, you'd imagine they could they could get great talent and assemble that infrastructure pretty quickly, but. Uh, I don't know if confidence plays into that as well from the yeah. league, you know, kind of protecting the brand. Right. Yeah. You can't underestimate the the, um, the tenure of these relationships and like, they're not just business deals. These are companies and people working together to put forth a product and put it in front of thousands of people over many decades or years or what have you. So um, within the, these relationships um, come sense of like respect, knowledge, um, expectations, and things that like sometimes you can't quantify, but like, are very tangible to um, the overall success for both those um, leagues and the networks.
I wanted to ask you the NBA's relationship with ESPN in particular. And I, I guess my question is, does, I guess, the mainstream media and just fans in general make too much of a big deal over drama with the coverage of how the NBA covers the league? Because I'm, I'm referring to the um, Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor situation. Not only that, but the this Ben Simmons. And then if you want to go like Monday night football with like Dennis Miller, it just seems like with ESPN, it always seems to be unstable in terms of their announcing teams, their coverage. But at the same time, at the end of the day, ESPN still wins out. They have all these sports under their umbrella. So when these media rights come up, is, is there any concern that the NBA has in terms of the that um, you know, that ESPN does have with their coverage because this has been an issue with, you know, with the four letter network over those two various different incidents. And with, I mean, it's one of those things where it's not like they're not virtual with Chuck and Shaq, but it did us have so much respect and just that coverage that there's no problems. It's, it's just going with the NBA's coverage over there with ESPN. It seems tons of drama, but at the end of the day, does that matter? The contract machines come into play. Uh, so yeah, I mean, when it comes to like these situations, you gotta think about what what each party is bringing to the table. So like from an NBA standpoint, like, I mean, yeah, NBA, the four letter, letter network they tend to bring a lot of drama with their coverage. But going back to like being in front of lots of eyes, they have to scale and the reach to like kind of don't necessarily overlook it, but um, you're less inclined to make a bigger deal out of it. So, but like obviously, if that that drama starts to affect the products, um, from the NBA standpoint, games, especially primetime games that are being put on, then they may um you know start to send some strongly worded emails or like some have some very long conference calls about those things. But um, I, it's all about significance. So like you know, a lot with a lot of controversies and um, um news topics, like over time, they they lessen in their severity. So um, I guess you just gotta apply some patience into it. But I mean, to your point, this has been like longstanding or like, this has been something that's happening over a longer period of time than I guess from, from a league standpoint you would like. But I mean, overall, like, you know, ESPN being backed by Disney, they have the money, they have the reach, they have the, the marketing and all that. Um, so like from a league standpoint, you don't make too much of a deal about it, but you would obviously prefer that it wasn't so much drama there gotcha well we appreciate your insights you have one more question matt or yeah one more real quick if yeah, that's sure. all right okay. um, yeah. awesome i i just wanted to ask uh one last question about the next cba just to get your insight about what is the relationship like right now between the players and ownership do you expect the next cba and i know we're putting on our prediction cap here look at looking into crystal balls and everything's uncertain but uh, do you feel like the relationship right now is pretty solid between players and owners and that we're not at a risk for potential like lockout season or, or things like that? Do you see uh, any road bumps in the horizon, I guess? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so I can say like, I've even I asked this question when I was um, still at the NBPA. And so like, from what I was still in my understanding, it's like, especially compared to other league um, relationships with them, league offices and their unions, the NBA in terms of being amicable and like um, working together is um, ranks like right at the top almost. Um, 
mm-hmm. in terms of like being able to work with um the lead partners. I mean, as you can see and how the bubble was able to be put on, I mean, that doesn't happen if there's not a good, strong relationship between union and league office. And so um, I don't see any like major ruckus event happening that um, may cause for like a loss of games or lockout, what have you. Um, fingers crossed, especially as an NBA fan. But, sure. um, yeah, I think from a relationship standpoint, um, they 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 work pretty well together. Um, there's good communication, uh, at least from my experience. And um, I think, you know, going forward, as long as they, like, compared to, like, the NFL, they consider, like, leagues and team owners consider, they actually consider their players to be partners in this business venture that we call the NBA. So um, that is important there because that affects, like, how you communicate, how you negotiate with your partners. And so um, if you actually consider them, consider your um, the other party to be on an equal level as you, you're more likely to be um, forthcoming in things and be able to work well together with them. And I guess when when money is flowing in, as as it might with these new medium negotiations, yeah. it's pretty pretty hard to uh, create an incentive where you want to break that up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fighting fighting list. Fighting leads to like loss of games, which leads to loss of money. So you try not to, you try to avoid fighting. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Well, thank you very much for joining the show. Uh, please Actually, let our listeners. I, oh, go ahead. I have a question for you guys. Yeah, um, of course. Because um, you know, being someone like who like loves sports and sports yeah. business, I've sure. been thinking about the the industry as a whole. So um, I just want to pose a question because I've been brainstorming a potential like business idea. But I just want to know, like, um, from a sports fan standpoint, um, how how do you like I don't know value the relationship, or do you think the relationship between fans and the teams and players that support, like, how equal level or balance of a relationship do you think it is? Um, that's a really good question. Um, That's a deep question. Yeah. You want to take this Matt, or you, you want to, cause I have a lot to say. Um, you can take it. Go ahead. Matt. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So I think my mind's a little bit different cause my, I don't know what you would call it. Palette for sports is pretty, it's large and it, it covers combat sports as well as team sports as well. And I think to your question, the, the answer is different depending on, combat sports and team sports. So to your team sports point, I would say for me, it's pretty good. I feel like with social media, I feel like there's relationship between the team um, and the fan dynamic in terms of who I follow my teams on Twitter in terms of, um, you know, just the schedule being released or there might be something little, but still like I'm getting a little of a pit of a piece of what's happening in that organization. So I think social media helps with that. Um, Matt and I, Matt still lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was born and raised there. Um, they recently got a soccer team, the New Mexico United, and yeah. they built their fan base slowly over time through this small um, ways of kind of ingratiating themselves to the community. So whether it's like a billboard or just small community events, and eventually that snowballed into a very hardcore fan base for a minor league soccer team. So, you know, somebody living in New York might think, why why is people obsessed with this minor league soccer team? But in Albuquerque, that's a huge deal, the New Mexico United. So they're able to cultivate that relationship over time because 
they cared about the community. So I think in team sports, um, they do a great job with that. I think um, if you're dealing with individual sports, that's a different story. So mm-hmm. I think, um, for instance, I would say I'm a big mixed martial arts fan. So like the UFC, for instance, with its fan base, I don't think it necessarily respects them sometimes in terms of really showing them the history of the sport because nowadays there's so many names you know conor mcgregor ronda rousey mm-hmm. in the past it's kind of okay who's the big name fighting and then it's kind of it whereas the the history of the sport is so vast that i don't think that connection is there unless you're a hardcore fan so newer consumers of the product they don't really understand kind of the struggle that MMA has gone through. Like when I witnessed it, where no one gave a crap about the sport and it was being called human cockfighting. Um, No one really appreciates the journey that it went through. Um, So I think in terms of kind of individual sports, like boxing, for instance, where it's just like, okay, we're just going to take your 79 bucks um, just because of this fight. Um, I don't necessarily think that that relationship is there on that end. I'll make one more point. Um, I also, I am a, a pro wrestling fan as well and that relationship is way worse um just because you're dealing with a um corporation that insults its audience consistently so they don't really (laughs) listen to their consumers all the time so and you've seen that over time through ratings just in terms of loss of advertisers loss of sponsors and or ratings tanking but you bring up a very interesting point they got their biggest rights deals (laughs) this past year with the uh, wwe being on um Fox and on USA Network and on Peacock, those yeah. are billion dollar deals, and their mm-hmm. ratings are terrible. <laughs> so they're trash. But yeah, you're yet you to make for a very good point that live sports is important. So the ratings are necessarily integral. It's that content you're getting those live eyeballs there. So I rambled on long enough, but I think it kind of depends on whichever venue um, sport you really like. So go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I think, you know, just to keep keep my answer kind of simple, um, I, I think what fans, teams, players, or athletes, whatever sport you're talking about, I, I think the goal should be mutual respect uh, between all parties. Like, um, you know, I, I think of the instances where maybe players left sticking with the NBA and, and there was controversy. Um you know, like take, for example, Kevin Durant leaves the Oklahoma City Thunder, kind of the the team that draft, well, technically the Supersonics drafted him, but you know what I'm saying, the franchise yeah. that drafted him. He leaves that franchise for the team that beat them. I, I understand the fans being really upset about that move and how that looks from a PR perspective. I also understand KD's anger in getting the response that he received from that. So, you know, I, I think... Fans a lot of times get overtaken by their emotions and uh, say things that I, I think in retrospect, if they just took five minutes or five deep breaths, even they probably wouldn't tweet that out. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think in some cases, all parties are at, at fault at, at different times. It, it all depends on the individual cases, right? I mean, there are certainly hundreds of examples of team mismanagement we can point to as well. So I, I think just the the goal should be heading towards mutual respect. And uh, I, I think it's what makes NBA free agency so interesting to me every single year is how are players going to handle their moves to other teams from like a PR perspective? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to diss that community that you've been with for several years. And I don't think 
any player really in, intends to do that, but they also have career goals and aspirations. And sometimes I think the fans need to understand that a little bit better too. So yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling as well, but, but I think mutual respect would be <laughs> what I would hope for down the road. No. Yeah. I mean, I posed the question because I want, those are great points and definitely like teams and like um, leagues in general need to do better in terms of like, treating their fans and respecting their fans. And, um, on building strong relationships, but I guess because uh, I I come from like a business background, so I was thinking like financially and like from a like just like from money standpoint, as sports fans, uh, we you know we we show our fandom through consumption essentially. Like um, if we like a player, we buy their jerseys, we buy their merchandises. We like a team, we buy season tickets, uh, buy their merchandises. Uh, we pay for um, like. NFL ticket and things like that, or you like a sport like boxing or UFC or MMA, you pay for ESPN Plus or you pay for the pay per view. And um, I guess I, I I saw that like there's not anything on the other end of that in terms of, like um, like from a fan like how are we like profiting or just even like making some type of financial gain from our um, fandom? Like is it just mm. a, is a labor of consum- consumption essentially or something like that? So um, I was just thinking like from a opportunity standpoint is there an opportunity to like kind of level the the balance scale in terms of like how fan like the fan to sports league and teams or sports content interaction like how to level that out financially so um but yeah just thinking essentially that that's really interesting because um to your point matt and i have done some interviews with um about NBA top shot yeah. and even though i don't think that's equal by any means i do think there's some financial incentive if you if you got into NBA Top Shot early. We interviewed a lot of um, guests that you know they got into Top Shot when no one heard about it, and they made a fortune out of it when it was really hot. Um, yeah. And now you're seeing you know with Top it's Shot going, into, yeah, going to yeah. a dynamic where hey, you get come to this game, a game that might be insignificant. It might be like, I don't know, two of the worst teams in the NBA, but you might get an NFT if you come to this event. And right. then, bam, that, you know, if you get a player that turns out to be great and you can sell that NFT on, you know, on that NBA top shot, that can be that financial incentive. Right. Um, but I think for the most part, I don't think there's a way for the fan to necessarily – get into the business side of things. I think it's more of the, I don't know, and this is where it gets very, <clears throat> I don't know how you would say this. Um, I don't know. You, it, I think the fans are more connected through feelings yeah. <laughs> and that sense of community. I think yeah. that's more worth than, than the actual financial incentive of things because, you know, I've, I'm a fan of a lot of different things within sports that other people make fun of and, or they they judge. And mm-hmm. a lot of it's just through the love, like boxing, for instance, where it's just, right. you know, Jake Paul gets the headlines or, you know, just a lot of this, you know, name fighters get the, the headlines. But, you know, following a fighter from you watching them from like a smoker from they're like, you know, 10 and 0 to when they're rising on pay-per-view. I mean, that's that's an investment of you know, being a fan from that long period of time in which you get to see them on pay-per-view. I'm not getting right. any money out of it. If anything, I'm spending money to go see them. So yeah, it's the other way around. But at the right. same time, like a fan of like Francis Canelo, been following his career since he was an amateur, you know, they're invested in him for, that's a 10 year, 20 year relationship on pay-per-view mm-hmm. in terms of merchandise, but they're worth the, they're, they're down to spend that money. So I think if anything, I think it's kind of the other way around where it's more, 
emotional rather than the fans really getting to it from a kind of business aspect. But it, of course it would be cool to, you know, if I'm a fan of the Chicago Bulls to get into whatever yeah. um, business success they may have over a long period of time. I think that'd be awesome. But I think it's much more of a kind of that personal relationship that's mostly seen. I don't know if you sort of feel the same way in that. Yeah. I mean, you, the only thing I can think of is like a unique structure, like the green Bay Packers where that community has ownership ties to the team, but that that's of course a very unique situation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree with the point Justin made about like NBA top shop. And I think also sports cars in general kind of come closest in terms of being a solution to that, that weird um, dichotomy or um, that relationship that fans have with their, in their fandom. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just like, I was, sometimes I would just sit back and think, is there a way for me, like, I don't know, I grew up loving Kobe. And like, if there, like, I mean, I wasn't, I don't think I was, well, if like from a fan standpoint, is there a way to like, Kobe gets drafted and then traded to the Lakers in 96. And like, you were such a big fan back then that like, you, you knew he was going to be big that like, I don't know. I mean, I guess like require sports cars or rookie cars or something yeah. like that would be the solution. And then like, you hold on it onto it till they become this huge legend and then like i guess you trade it in and then there goes i mean it's the end of your financial fandom of um that player but like i I mean these are all like you know murky like brainstorming type of topics right now but just thinking like is there is there some type of solution or is there an answer to that like be for fans having fans have a way to profit from their fandom essentially yeah, I mean, I think like the only answer right now outside of the things that you mentioned uh, would be like content creation, um, you know, and I mean, you look at like the rise of Brian Windhorse and, you know, so you could you could have been in, in this scenario like Kobe Bryant's Brian yeah. Windhorse, you know, have the uh, the inside scoop on him and basically, you know, dedicate your your career towards following him and, and having that inside scoop and relationship but uh, yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting uh, question because you could you could definitely cultivate uh, deeper relationships with fans that way. So I could see how uh, finding an answer would be appealing to these organizations as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say to your point, maybe soccer is kind of the closest because they have actual like I don't know, lack of a better term, clans <laughs> in terms of like their they name their their sex dance sections uh-huh. and they have like the bars they go to, they have their own merchandise. Yeah. And so if maybe teams were to pay those certain section of fans and get them involved, I think that might be a way because I mean they are a massive factor. I mean if you go to any kind of a massive soccer match or a football match in Europe, you'll see different subsets of fans of the same team. Um, And they're like, I mean, you might go, you might see a pub out there. Hey, we're the supporting club of whatever Manchester United, but we're these sets, a subset of fans that support Manchester United. So Mm -hmm. I think if anything, maybe supporting as a subset of fans that, you know, they're responsible for outreach. They're responsible for kind of getting the word out and you're paying them because they have a more of an emotional tie to the team. So that's the only really thing I can think of is kind of taking advantage of those fans that are really hardcore into it and rewarding their fandom that they're going to do anyways with some kind of financial incentive. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, well, we appreciate you being on the show. Um, let us know where we can find you on social media, media, excuse me, and what you're yeah. working on, like, in the future. Any projects or anything we should kind of be on the lookout for? No, yeah, definitely. Um, so 
you can, I mean, I guess you can find me. I mean, this might sound corny, but you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I check my DMs a lot. So if you have any inquiries there, um, social media wise, um, Instagram, you can find me. Uh, I think it's Olisa underscore AZ at Olisa underscore AZ. Um, and then um, venture or projects wise, um, I want to start, a, um, I'm planning on starting like a, a blog uh, centered around my expertise in sports business. And kind of, um, I feel like there might be a little of a need or a niche for like kind of not synthesizing all the like back end business things that happen and like kind of like, you know, synthesizing it into a way that actually applies to a lot of fans, like give them a reason why they should care, like, i.e. the media rights deal and how it affects salary cap and how that will affect the, affect the makeup of your favorite team. So things like that, um, that probably be under the title sports business feed. I'm still workshopping the title title there. But uh, yeah, overall, um, that's where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm hoping to do more in terms of content. But um, right now it's been definitely just more of like learning and working and like growing my career. That's awesome. Um, and I think there's definitely a need in that. I mean, I'm a huge sports business nerd. I love ratings. I just, because um, this it's kind of the sports I follow, that was kind of that the heart like that's like integral to their business surviving whereas kind of team sports they're kind of all good yeah. for the most part there's no threat so a kind of the way that all these sports kind of interwovenly um, affect each other um, mm-hmm. I think it's really fascinating so I'll be on the lookout for your blog for sure yeah yeah appreciate it yeah well thank you very much for coming on the show we'll definitely have you on um, I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting year in terms of this media and, and other stories so we'll definitely have you on for your expertise yeah let me know appreciate it love being on thank you welcome to another episode of Hoopsology I am Justin Goodrum drum and Matt Thomas what's up man What's up, man? I, I'm doing well. We just got done interviewing Olisa Azikiwe. Right. Thank you to him. Big shout out to him for joining the show. That was very insightful. I, I learned a lot that I wasn't expecting to learn. Yeah. How are you doing? Good, man. And you're right. Um, Elisa was awesome. And uh, I can tell you this will probably be our go-to uh, media expert. So if anything goes down in terms of uh, drama and of what's happening with the NBA. I'm sure there's a lot of it. I mean, there's, you know, how it is. Basketball has a lot of hot takes, hot opinions, and people get up in arms about stuff. So um, he has great insight. So I'm looking forward to talking to him. And again, if you're looking on our video feed, um, that will be on our YouTube channel, um, and as well as our Facebook feed as well, uh, IG Live also, that's on there. And if you're listening to the audio portion, you just check that out. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Um, On today's show, man, we're going to recap the United States winning the gold medal, beating France, and um, stopping the doubters. Um, it's kind of hilarious in terms of when the U.S. loses. There's up in arms. There's panic over Twitter. It's just like, you know, we're dealing with the pandemic and there's other things that are really, uh, you know, so serious in our society. But the U.S. loses in basketball and all hell breaks loose. So um, I'm glad the USA beat France so we can uh, move on to more important things. But we're going to recap um, the United States beating France 87 to 82 to win the gold medal over France. Um, just to recap the game a little bit, um, Kevin Durant um, scored 29 points, and he was very integral. I watched this game. It was – I could see it in his eyes. He was just in um, a mode of aggressiveness the entire time, even though 
just looking back on this Olympics, their three-point shooting was atrocious, but you can see them being massively aggressive. So I think this was a massive accomplishment, as I said earlier, um, to Matt, you know, to yourself, Matt, off air. Um, you know, you had Drew Holiday, Devin Booker, Chris uh, Middleton, you know, taking a long flight after their celebration. I'm sure they were drunk. Let's <laughs> just keep it real. Um, in terms of their celebration, <laughs> they're hungover. Just like, I mean, you're off this high, right? Of this, you know, you just win the world championship and you have to go to Tokyo to, you know, compete in this international tournament that is very, very competitive. Um, just for them to participate and be a, you know, a positive factor, I think is a huge accomplishment. Um, so go ahead, Matt. Go ahead with your recap. Yeah, well, just real quick to kind of set the stage for sure. this, you know, we did have two losses in exhibition play. Correct. That was to Nigeria and France, if I'm not mistaken there. So it was good to have redemption in this gold medal game and, and beat France for that. Uh, a very talented, a very big French team. Um, but heading into the preliminary round, just for those of you who didn't catch it, the United States took care of business beating the Czech Republic 119 to 84. You can see it on the screen here in the quarterfinals. We took care of business against Spain. And this is where myself as a fan of Team USA started feeling a bit more confident about, hey, you know what? We, we really do have the best player in the world right now, or at least the best player competing in these games currently. And we really should take care of business. To me, that... The expectation still every Olympics is that we should be taking gold unless something goes extremely wrong, even with the um, the roadblocks that you mentioned or the the obstacles that you mentioned earlier. We we hold a pretty high standard given that uh, you know we have the ninety two dream team. We we kind of pride ourselves for. Um, being the originator and the the growers of the sport of basketball. Moving into the semifinals, we take care of business against Australia. No small task there, given they've got, you know, Joe Inglis, Patty Mills. Um, they have uh, Jock, I can't remember his last name, but we talked about him last pod, who just signed with the Spurs. So that's a legit team in Australia. And correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, but... In the finals, as you'll see, you mentioned that we beat France to win the gold medal. Um, Australia wins their bronze medal. I, I believe that's the first time the Australian basketball team has medaled. So congratulations to them on that. was uh, really cool seeing Joe Inglis and Patty Mills celebrating together on Twitter for that. So Justin, was let, let me ask you just broadly, was there... A month, like I mentioned, our match against Spain, where we kind of flex a little bit. We win that game by 14 points. Was there a moment for you where it felt like expectations of this team were a little bit higher now, or they had, they had kind of settled in, or maybe just turned a corner as a cohesive unit? Sorry, Justin, I got you. I think you're on mute. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I go. was nervous. Uh, sorry about that. I was nervous about this entire tournament, to be honest, because mm. I watched some of these games. The way they did the um, the start times of the games, it was able to be viewed in prime time. I think it was like nine, ten o'clock Mountain Time. Um, just watching it, their their three point shooting was terrible. <laughs> like, we're talking like going stretches of like over nine, over ten. So I was like, oh man, what is happening here? Um, and that France loss freaked me out, just in terms of like game management that was baffling to me. I'm like, 
I don't know. Those those caliber of players and Popovich, I didn't understand what, what was going on in that sequence. Since they won the gold medal, it's, like, it's just like a fluke. I guess, you know, things happen. But um, to answer your question, I was pretty nervous the entire time. I mean, they they were behind in a lot of those games. I think even Spain, they were behind in that game too. France, right. they are behind. It's just they never, in my opinion, just like – outright destroyed a team in this tournament. I think, I think that even against to, Australia, even yeah, with that win, yeah. I think they were behind before halftime. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, I never felt comfortable. And I think it mm. speaks to the level of competition is up. I mean, there's no, I think you're right. The USA is going to be the, the predominant favorite. The USA has the best talent in the world. But I think this notion of just the United States just destroying everybody at every game, I think that just has to go out the window. I think that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, especially the way this team was constructed in terms of getting, you know, three integral players, you know, off an NBA finals and who knows what's going to happen with like, we're in a new world now where the schedule might be turned upside down. So um, when we were dealing with like the FIBA world championships or just the Olympics, I mean, the Olympics are coming up pretty quickly. I mean, they're not the way the schedule works. It's still going to be Paris in 2024. So who knows what's going to happen, you know, three years from now, we might be in a similar situation with the NBA schedule. So my point is, is that that level of comfortability where I had previous Olympics where, yeah, the USA is going to, going to wipe the floor of this team and they're going to automatically win the gold medal. I'm nervous every game and I enjoy it. It's, it's fun to watch. It's, it's much more enjoyable product than me not knowing the USA is going to win the game or not. I think the, the level of competition, I think defensively from Spain, Australia um, and France, I think was pretty good. And I think it raised the, attention of the United States. I didn't feel like there was a massive talent disparity. I didn't feel like, okay, U.S. are just like not giving a crap about this game. I feel like the other teams are they're playing well. <laughs> they're, they're competing with the United States. I feel like the gap has gone, it's pretty much this. And so United States, if they play poorly, they will lose. I mean, they just... It's not going to be a thing where Durant can go 0 for 12 and, you know, the other guys, Damian Lillard, can struggle and they can win somehow. Like, I think they're going to have to put on a pretty decent performance to win. I know I think Damian Lillard was dealing with an injury, too, from what I heard after um, from on social media. Somebody said that. So I think overall to your question, Matt, I felt, I felt pretty nervous <laughs> watching all mm. these games. Uh, but it made it fun to watch. It made it more enjoyable. Yeah, I – I feel differently in, in some aspects. I, I think totally with, you know, the NBA season being structured so that they could get players to the Olympics and so that they could finish the season right before the Olympics. Uh, but even then players still missing exhibition rounds. It was cut sure. very close. I don't think we're going to get that in four years. I think that's going to be a beneficial, uh, a beneficial thing for team USA. I also in some ways feel positive about the outcome here because I, I it it seems to me we sent and I don't mean this as a slide against anyone that was there but other than KD it felt to me like we were sending a B team to get the the Olympics done here I mean we didn't we didn't have a Steph we didn't have a LeBron for obvious reasons I mean there there are injury stuff so you know I'm, I'm not using this opportunity to rip on any of those guys certainly any anything like that but basically with the I mean we got JaVale McGeehan as <laughs> playing significant center role yeah. uh, on this team USA. So in, in, in other years, I don't, I don't think that happens and that's no disrespect to him, but just 
um, the the talent that we had there was a B team and we were still able to get gold. So in my opinion, I, I think in four years, the world talent is going to continue to improve. I, I'm totally with you on that. But I do think our caliber of talent that we're sending might be better, you know, God willing, <laughs> that we don't have the year, uh, the year and a half or so that we've had this past year and a half, and we don't get a, a weird Olympic schedule or th- some season like that. So I think the the next team will be deeper and we'll have a smoother time. I also wanted to ask you this. Do you think this is Pop's last team coaching, last time coaching Team USA? Seems like it to me. They feel like kind of a swan song, you know? So I would agree. It's yeah. kind of like he got his gold and he's kind of, he's out. <laughs> so, um, and it also, it just seems like a lot of work too. And I think, you know, his age and what I'm feeling of his career could be completely wrong. He could coach for another 10 years. I don't know, but it, it seems like his career is coming to an end. So I would say this is his last Olympics in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I would think that the heir apparent there is Steve Kerr, Agreed. who was, who was on the bench there. It seems like just with the connections that he has and being a former player himself, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, did you have any other thoughts on, this game against France before I ask you some, some other broad questions I want to tackle. No, not really. Um, I, I will say one thing is after the game, um, I think you saw Draymond green and Kevin Durant really take those doubters to heart. Um, one thing I think it was cool to see them like cool. <laughs> um, and they're clearly hanging out. Like it just seemed like any beef they had is over. Um, and anything that happens through the regular season is more competitive than like they have some kind of drama from Golden State years ago. Because they were like, you see, you see Kevin Durant's IG live. I mean, he's not the guy to fake. One thing about Kevin Durant, he's not the guy to fake any type of like flattery. He doesn't like mm-hmm. you. He's not talk mm-hmm. So him and Draymond were hanging out. I thought that was cool. But I guess my point is, is that they were pretty much shutting up the doubters there, pretty much saying like uh, he did, did, did. I think they even went out there at Kendrick Perkins because <laughs> I think he right. was a heavy doubter of um, what Team USA was going to do. But no, I think um, a question I want to ask, kind of ask you, you brought up earlier is like, what's this team going to be like in Paris? And I, most likely I don't see LeBron playing on his team. Oh yeah. No. Um, and I, with Steph, I think that's even a question mark. I don't know if he's going to be on his team, to be honest. I mean, with injuries and everything like that. And you have to wonder what, what about Clay Thompson? I mean, we don't know what he's going to, his injury status is going to be. I mean, oh, yeah. Zion, we don't know. I mean, he could be a massive player in this league. We don't know, but it's a situation. Will this team be that much better if they have James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Durant, um, Zion? I mean, maybe, but at the same time, I mean, was would Kyrie really want to play for Team USA? I don't know. I mean, James Harden. You know, I mean, it's just a lot of other question marks that I don't necessarily think that we're going to see like an, a super team out there. I think we saw this team want they won the gold. And so they went with their quote unquote B team. What's the incentive of really jacking this team up? Okay. This, you know, you have your B team and they already have other, when players were falling out from this Olympics, you had other players that wanted to play on this team. So I think it's, it's abundantly clear that they don't necessarily have to put out, okay, the A plus guns are blazing. Let's get, make sure we have like 12 all-stars on this team. Um, I think they're going to kind of, you know, take this approach moving on out. Um, and I think it, it, for me, it makes it more fun to watch, but mm-hmm. I get it. If people are freaking out in terms of, Hey, we should beat every team by 30. Then, you know, I, I don't think the A team is going to necessarily be out there just due to 
different restraints, but I, you know, I could be mistaken. Well, to your point, you know, next Olympics, <laughs> Luca is going to be the best player in the world, hands down. And, and I don't know if that's enough to get Slovenia to the medal stage, but they're they're going to be in the hunt for sure. Got there before, yeah. And, and you got to think um, they're they're going to be working hard, knowing that they have Luca to develop other talent around him uh, to get to the medal stage. And, and I hope for his sta- sake, he does get to the medal stage. Um, but no, that's that's a great point. And um, you know, I I think it will be interesting to see. You're going to have to see the next generation because even if you look at like a James Harden, he'll be 36 next Olympics, that's and that's that's pretty old. And I. I don't know if he will be in the mood that he wants to go get a gold medal or not, but we're going to see, you know, will pressure be there on Anthony Davis? Will we see like the rise of Zion uh, to come and can kind of take the mantle? You know, it's, it's kind of this whole act of passing the baton and it's, it's been this way for a few generations of players that, that we've had the privilege to watch now. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if I think if the U S backs off the gas pedal we are seeing talent rise to the point that and you and i have seen it that you know they haven't always gotten the gold medal when when we've watched them so yeah they need to keep their foot on the gas pedal if this is important to team usa to win the gold um and you're right it does make it more entertaining because there is a real threat now and and multiple threats uh from other teams so I think it's going to be a great thing for the sport of basketball just in general, that it's going to be a very entertaining product. One of the highlights of the Olympics, I would imagine, as we see more of this talent developed. Um, Let me, let me ask you this um, before we wind down here, you know, one of the things that I think the U S struggled with in exhibition play, there's a thread that I retweeted. If you want to hunt it down on my Twitter feed, but a thread of U.S. basketball players basically using tricks that they would use to get foul calls in the USA, uh, in the NBA, excuse me, that just didn't fly in FIBA basketball with international rules being what they are. I think that's something that contributed to those upsets is just this kind of gear shifting. And like you said, a lot of players being thrown off coming uh, from the NBA finals or otherwise, or just even shifting to the feel of the new basketball and getting used to this game. But having said all that, what, what would you say when comparing like FIBA rules or just the look and feel of Olympic basketball compared to the current NBA, is there stuff that the NBA should adopt so that team USA is more prepared next time around? Um, I actually like the, um, five fouls, um, Mm. in the international rules. Um, I think it adds a lot more in terms of, you know, foul trouble. Cause I think a lot of times that's used as like a crutch Mm -hmm. in the American game. Um, other than that, I think, I think you're right, man, in terms of just the flopping and just like, and I know the NBA is going to be enforcing this in terms of kind of changing the rules in terms of players and in particular, when a player is taking a three point shot and the offensive players creating the contact um, and the defensive player gets called for the foul, which I never understood. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like somebody running the stop sign and the person that gets hit is their fault for getting hit by the car. That makes no sense. <laughs> so it's just, I think in the international game, they don't really <laughs> deal with that foolishness so that's something that um i hope that's alleviated um i think i don't know 
other than that, I think ball movement, I've noticed that that was an issue. When you when Team USA moved the ball, they had better athletes. They're going to destroy every other team because, yeah, I think USA, along with their basketball knowledge, you know, when they're playing together, they're just going to be more athletic than the other team. I think when they fall into trouble is when they get, we get into ISO land. They're jacking up three-point shots, and it's a situation in which – you're going to go cold and it's the way the international game works and timelines and everything. A lot of players are not in rhythm. And so you can't get in rhythm in a tournament. And so compared to like, you know, in the beginning of the NBA season, you have preseason, you have the regular season, you kind of get in the rhythm in terms of games played internationally. It's totally different. So um, I don't know other than like the fouls and just, you know, the rule changes that are coming to the NBA. I'm not sure of anything else I would necessarily bring into the NBA games that's going to get these players prepared, per se. Um, but I, I do like how the NBA is taking a um, initiative and making sure that a lot, a lot of flops and other foolishness is not going to be happening anymore. I think that's a positive step. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what the NBA looks like next year with these changes that they're adopting. I, I just think in general, we hear too many whistles in NBA games. Like there, there should be more neutral calls where a whistle isn't blown. Like they just they let the players keep playing um, through it. I mean, of course, every individual play is different and you you have to weigh that when you're officiating. It's part of what makes it so difficult. I think also just the pacing like they don't they don't take a ton of times for a ton of time for free throw attempts in the international game and they just keep it moving they keep it constant there's more of kind of like a, a yeah. soccer flavor to it and yeah. also you're not getting nonsense of players I, i'm sorry to rip on the nba for this but players complaining with the officials like the officials have much better control of the game and it seems like they command more respect without blowing the whistle so much that the officials become the star of the game. Cause we, we don't want that either, of course, but it just seems like there's, as you said earlier, there's less nonsense in this international game. And if, if you look at that thread that I mentioned or just highlights from the game against Nigeria, there are moments in there that are just laughable with what our players are, <laughs> are trying to get away with and trying to draw the ref's attention to that. It, it just, doesn't fly. I mean, they treated it like nonsense. And then what you saw happen because we have the best talent in the world, our players adjusted, played more physical basketball. Like you mentioned, moved the ball a little bit better as well, gelled a little bit better for sure. Uh, and then got it done that way. I, I think that is better optics in terms of, and, and a better product on the court when you're looking yeah. at it. So uh, that's something I'd like to see any thoughts you mentioned, like Fouls going down to five fouls a game, uh, much like the college game. Would would you want like ten minute quarters to coincide with that? I don't think so. There's not really anything else that I would change. To be honest, I like the NBA product. Yeah, um, I think compared to college, I think college is boring. To be honest, <laughs> it's just not as exciting unless I'm watching the Lobos or some top NBA prospect. Um, mm -hmm. you know, playing for Duke or North Carolina or something. But um, I think other than that, I wouldn't really change anything. I think well, like I mentioned before, that those are the changes I would like to see. And I think, you know, what we're seeing here, I just wanted to point this out since we're kind of talking about it, the um, NBA rule changes, um, they're going to start calling fouls um, 
with these four criteria, the shooter launches or leans into a defender at an abnormal angle. The offensive player abruptly veers off his path sideways or backwards into a defender. The shooter kicks his light up or at the side at an abnormal angle. The offensive player's off-arm hooks the defender often in the process of attempting a shot in a non-basketball manner. So I think these players being used to being called, called fouls on this will actually help them in their national competition because, like you said, you can't get, get away with this nonsense in the NBA. So I think they'll be used to it come international play. So I think it's actually a huge benefit, um, even though I think I don't think that's the NBA's intention of prepared play, but um, I think that will be a – a byproduct of that. Hundred percent. One more thing I wanted to mention before we sign out here, yep. and then please, if if you have anything else, go for it. Uh, but I do want to give a shout out to the women's team who won the gold medal as well. This is their seventh time in the in a row, which is pretty in, incredible. I mean, doing of course dream team stuff there. Our our talent is just unparalleled right now. I mean, they've been dream teaming it for a long time. Uh, so shout out to them winning 90 to 75 against the home team of Japan in that final gold medal game. Uh, so shout out to them legends on that team, Sue bird and Diana Taurasi winning their fifth gold medals each, I believe. Um, so shout out to them also showing USA proud. So uh, really happy to see that. And then we didn't uh, mention it last time. But we also want to mention a special shout out to Alicia Gray, who won gold That's for right. the three by three women's yep. tournament. So shout out to her and uh, and props on getting that gold. Pretty cool that that we can say that we've talked to a gold medalist now. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. I was telling everybody that once they won, it's like, yeah, we interviewed a gold medalist. Yeah, so that's pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty sweet. Pretty yeah, awesome to absolutely. see. For sure. Um, I didn't have anything else, so I think that's going to wrap things up. Um, as always, check out our interview archive on our podcast feed. We have recaps of the Boston Celtics season, of the Miami Heat season. We have interviews with tons of authors as well um and there's tons of great content on there that's pretty um evergreen which means that you know there's no kind of time limit um so please go check that out over this past season lots of this uh great interviews to kind of keep you hold over until um, the next season starts um so please enjoy summer league that's going on now you have a lot of drew league stuff um big threes happening um there's of course ball is life who we interviewed the um founder of so check all that out i don't know if you've seen like their YouTube channel, Matt, the sending some clips. They're uh, pretty hilarious just in terms of the street balls. They're like Boss Life, they have a team of five guys that go around the country, they play pickup games and trash talk and stuff. It's pretty insane. I'll send you some of it. <laughs> um, I think you'll get a kick out of it. it out. Anyways, tons of basketball for um, if you're just looking for that fix um, since the NBA is not happening. So for Absolutely. Matt Thomas, I am Justin Goodrum, and we will see you next time. Have a great week. Peace.